As I was uh, preparing for this session, um, I came across a story of uh, a young man. It was, it was on the uh, news feeds on a lot of the media channels of a young teenager who'd uh, been killed. And he was killed uh, playing a game of Russian roulette. And uh, the, the live round had gone off and uh, put a bullet through his head. Playing with sin is like playing Russian roulette with your life. You might get away with it. It might not do any damage for a while, but eventually the odds shorten. And when the gun fires, it will kill things. It will kill relationships, it will kill friendships, it will kill self-worth, it might kill your career, it might kill your prospects, and it certainly will kill your destiny. Playing with sin is a dangerous game. And we covered some of that in the last session, but I want to uh, really continue with Paul's response to that question. Isn't it okay if we're under grace just to carry on sinning? Now, that's often a difficult question to answer without moving outside of grace. But Paul does it really well. And uh, the key here is to teach grace and not mix it with law. To understand that we are righteous by faith through what Christ has done. But that sin does have consequences. And in this session, what we're going to do is really look at some of those consequences. So Romans chapter 6, uh, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Don't you know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience... You become slaves to the one who you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So if we continue to pursue sin in our lives, it will have a result. It's not that God has changed his approach towards us. It's not that God um, hasn't forgiven us. It's not that God's turned his back on us or got mad at us when we sin. The issue is much more what the enemy is able to do in our life. The enemy gets access to your life through sin. And he can use that access to do what he tries to do in everybody's lives, which is to steal, to kill and to destroy. And he's good at it. He knows that if he can load the chamber, eventually the bullet will fire. So he's, he's intent on loading the chamber. And the key here is not to help him by, by loading the chamber ourselves. Now I want to make clear, a lack of holiness does not stop God moving in our life. But it does allow the enemy access to our life. And that's a really important distinction. It allows the enemy the ability to impose his plans on our life.
And so when we adopt an attitude of it's okay just to carry on sinning and it doesn't really matter, now how, how, how can I say this tactfully? This is like Christianity 101. When you adopt that attitude that it's okay to carry on sinning, you are stupid. You're an idiot. You're just plain stupid to think that that's, that's sensible. I mean, you know, you've left your brain at the checkout. I, I, I try to be gentle in these things, so I hope that was gentle enough. See, salvation 101. Why carry on sinning when you don't have to? What, 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 what earthly thing has possessed you to do that? It's like putting a loaded gun to your head and waiting for it to fire. And you don't have to live with that threat. You're designed differently. You're designed to run fast. You're designed to run free. You're, you're designed to live a life of freedom, a life of joy, a life of peace, a, a life with a destiny, a life with a purpose. And, and sin slows you down. It's like it, it puts this big weight on your shoulders and round your neck and you carry it around with you because it messes up all, all the good stuff. And as a believer, life is about living free. The believer's uh, life is hallmarked by freedom. Now, I'll, I'll just show you that. Let's, uh, let's go to Galatians. Go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. You, you don't want to be enslaved again. You, you want to live the life that Christ bought for you. A life of freedom, a life of joy, a, a life of energy and, and, and purpose. And true freedom is not freedom to sin. True freedom is the freedom not to sin. Before you were born again, you couldn't help it. You had a sin nature that drove you that way. But now you don't have to sin. And you'll only know true freedom when you enter into that freedom not to sin. And allow God to lift off that weight, not carry around all that stuff that weighs you down, pulls you down, drags you down and, and, and tries to keep you there. When it uses that word yoke of slavery, um, different ways of, of translating that word, it, it's, it's a burden, it's a weight. Um, one uh, um, translation of that word is it, it's an entrapment. It's just like putting yourself in a cage and you don't need to do it. Now, I, I like and I find really interesting this phrase, keep standing firm and don't be subject again to that yoke of slavery. How do you stand firm? One of the uh, phrases that... It, the, that Paul uses when he's talking about uh, standing firm to uh, see the victory. He talks about our 
our feet been shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And that is the way we stand. We stand having our feet shod by the gospel of peace. Now what does that mean? Well when he uses that image, and it's part of the whole image of putting on the full armour of Christ. When he uses that image he has in mind a Roman soldier. And Roman soldiers uh, used to wear these, these sandal uh, shoes that they used to use to march in and going into battle in. And in the bottom of those shoes they had spikes. Now those spikes didn't go straight down, they faced backwards. And there was a good reason for that. Because when that soldier went into battle and he was holding his shield up in front of him and, and facing the enemy who were all pressing in against him and his fellow soldiers, he would wedge his feet in the ground and plant them firmly. Because the spikes went backwards, it allowed him to stand firm. And that, that's the image that Paul's talking about here. He's talking about having, having yourself firmly planted in the gospel. And what is the gospel? Where, that, that is the way we stand in the gospel, but, but how do we stand? And what Paul is saying is, is that you stand in grace. Now you might remember that from an earlier session. We stand in grace, the grace in which we stand. It's so important that when the pressures of this life and, and the temptations of the enemy and, and, and all, the, all the things that go on around us, uh, start to press in, that we stand firm. And the place that we stand firm is in grace, knowing that in Christ we have the victory, knowing that sin doesn't have dominion over us, knowing that we have full provision for everything we need for life and godliness through the victory that Christ won on the cross. And it's so important that in times of pressure, we don't get over into a, a, a different way of thinking where we're trying to earn God's favour. So we, we stand, and we stand in grace, but which way do we face? Well, I think it's really clear from, from these passages that, that we face forwards. We look towards the destiny that Christ has for us. We are, we are on a journey to see everything that Christ has for us, and, and that journey is one of freedom. It's one of peace with God. It's one of relationship, an ever-deepening relationship with God. And it's one where we access and, and receive all that Christ gave us. So the way we stand is in grace, but the way we do it is we keep our eyes on Jesus. We keep on looking at him. We keep on uh, focused on him, setting our minds on him, thinking about him, keeping our focus there. Let's look at... Uh, but something else now. Let's move on to Hebrews. Hebrews, uh, I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 12. And it, it's on the same topic, but I just want to bring out another aspect. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. And Paul's just uh, finished talking about the great heroes of the faith. And he says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance that race is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, 
despising the same, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's so much in that passage. I could I could talk about that passage for weeks, but I just want to uh, really focus on one or two things. And the first one thing I want to focus on there is that sin entangles. Now that word uh, entangle means to ensnare or entrap or encircle or surround. Um, and basically it indicates in its original uh, context something that seriously hinders and hampers the purposes of God in our life. It stops people moving forward, it stops us advancing. And, and the idea here really is that sin reduces your options. If you, if you just carry on not um, using the gift that you've been given, the gift of grace, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and you just carry on the way you are, it reduces your options in life. God came to give you life in all its fullness. And sin stops us getting into that because it reduces the options available to us. It, it blocks us in, it cuts off things that were, were for our benefit. And the way it does that is progressive. Sin entangles progressively. And, and the way that happens is it happens, as all these things do, at our heart level. Because sin has an effect on our heart. It influences our heart. And the way it does that is that the Bible calls it, it hardens our heart. And that hardening of our heart, that damage to that new heart that we have, is what stops or reduces the flow of the life of God in us. And the, the, that hardening takes place in the part of our heart which is uh, in the area of our mind, our will, our emotions. Where we, you know, in terms of our emotions, where we, we find ourselves operating in a place of fear or anxiety or, or rejection. And in terms of uh, our mind, you, you know, we operate in belief systems and reasoning which has a lot to do with worldly wisdom and not a lot to do with God's wisdom. The effect of that hardening is not on God. God hasn't moved, he hasn't shifted, he hasn't changed his attitude to love us, uh, towards us. He still loves us, he still cares about us, he's not mad at us, he isn't imputing our sins to us, he isn't judging us, he isn't counting and, and weighing everything up. He, he's at peace with us, he's reconciled to us and he sees us as righteous. But that hardening has an effect on us. It desensitises us to God. It desensitises us to the Holy Spirit. And that we, we become much more sensitive to the natural and less sensitive to the spiritual or the supernatural. And when we become less sensitive to the supernatural and more sensitive to the natural, we find that we, can, we cut off or reduce the supernatural flow of life and God's provision in our life. There's two, two ways we can express that principle. They're, they're very similar, there's some subtle differences, but I, I, I just want you to think about these for a moment. Two expressions of kingdom principles. The first is this, 
What you focus on in your life is what you empower. And secondly, what you give your attention to is what you hunger for. Now I'll clarify those principles. I just want to look at something that, that causes a lot of believers problems. Um, I know a lot of believers who become disillusioned with Christianity and, and, and their relationship with God. Not because of God and not because of themselves, but because of other believers. And they've lost their way and turned away from God because they've seen ministers who have had evidence of the miraculous, the supernatural in their life, and then they've fallen spectacularly through some sin in their life. And they don't, aren't able to put together how uh, God could do supernatural things through that person's life at, at the same time as they were actually indulging in quite a sinful lifestyle. And the answer really lies in the way that the gospel operates. So hopefully it's helpful to try and explain uh, how you get that discord between the, 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 the seeming presence of the supernatural and the sinful lifestyle. Let's start with a verse from Galatians chapter 3. Uh, Paul's really talking about the way we receive things from God. And he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So when we look at the lives of these ministers, um, what we discover when we look at that is that the presence of the miraculous didn't start in their life because they were holy. It didn't start in their life because they were some sort of amazing super spiritual person and they did all the right things or, or they were worthy of it. The miraculous started because they trusted and were dependent on Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we think, well, over time, we, we start to digress from that thinking and we start believing there's some relationship between God's desire to bring about good for, in, in people's lives and God's desire to bring about good in other people's lives. There's some relationship with that dependent on how holy the person is who's ministering. And, it, and it's as if we, we think that we have caused God to do something by our efforts. Uh, our own prayer, our own holiness, uh, our own, um, uh, I guess, paying the price of, of having God move in our life that way. And uh, when we start thinking like that, we start thinking things like, God's not going to heal that person because we're not good enough or we're not that, that anointed person. Moving on down to verse 5, does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law, our own efforts, or by hearing with faith? A person who's preaching the gospel with signs and wonders, how does that happen? It doesn't happen because of that person's holiness. It happens because they believe. You know, some people believe that miracles and revival are a response to holiness or a response to effort or a response to quantity of 
prayer, a, res a response to quantity of devotion to God. But, and, and they're trying to get God to make things happening. That type of thinking is just plain wrong. It's old covenant. You see, God's grace works on the basis of faith. And some people, some ministers, have faith and have seen God move powerfully and expect him to repeat it again. And because it's on the basis of faith, it's un unaffected initially by their lifestyle. Now, ultimately, their lifestyle will affect it because their heart will start to harden to God and they'll become desensitised. But we can find ourselves with this, this period where it looks like God is blessing somebody who's living a sinful lifestyle. And the truth is, God doesn't operate on the basis of what we do. He operates on the basis of what Christ has done and our faith in receiving it. You see... Our sin doesn't affect God's heart towards us, but it, it does affect our heart towards God. And we can harden ourselves in that way. I just want to uh, finish off really with one point that, that will enable us to move on to uh, future sessions. Turn with me, with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Sin shall not be master over you, for you not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Don't you know that you, when you present yourselves as someone's slaves to obedience, you're slaves of the one you obey? Now we've looked at this passage before. But the point that I'm bringing here is that we've moved out from under law into a new realm the rule of grace and that we'd be marked and stamped by grace and that's displayed in our lives now come with me to Galatians chapter 4 because I want to show you something Galatians chapter 4 verse 1 and uh, because God's desire is for relationship and he has given us adopted us adopted us as children of his. He's, he's made us his heirs, that we are sons and daughters of God. Now, in that, he doesn't want us to be immature, childish babies. He wants us to be mature sons and daughters. And that's uh, incredibly important here. Now, I say as long as the, as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those under the law and that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we're sons, God sent forth his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And this passage likens uh, 
serving to serving God under the law as being immature. And but under grace, you're encouraged to be mature. Now the implication of that, it, it's I, I guess a way of thinking of it is like this: that um, when you reach adulthood, a lot of the restrictions that you were under as a child by your parents, they're, they're lifted. You, you, as an adult, a mature child, you're expected to be able to make decisions for yourself. And that doesn't mean that just because you're an adult now, you go out and do stupid things. You know, just because uh, you might, somebody might encourage you to do it, doesn't mean you go and run under a bus or, or, or jump from a tall building. Like a grown-up son and daughter, you, you may not have the restrictions you had previously, but that doesn't mean you just go and do crazy things. You're no longer doing things for acceptance from God. But what God wants to do is he wants to share his life with you. He wants to share his purpose with you. He, he wants you to step into the fullness of maturity of being able to make your own wise decisions. Um, and many Christians today, they still live into this old type of relationship of rules and performance and they never step into the freedom and maturity of a mature relationship under God. And without realising that God's placed in them that born-again spirit, which flows in them and helps them live a mature life, they end up being controlled and dominated by just this restrictive lifestyle. And that's not what God wants for us. He, he wants a, a mature lifestyle where we know his heart, 